Thank you. Yes, we're Jeff and Jamie Gwynn, and really, I just want to proclaim that let us decrease and let Jesus increase before we share our testimony. It's not really about us. It's about God's faithfulness. Um, you know, um, this is really a sacred moment for me personally because uh, I've never really spoken with Jamie about our testimony of what we went through 16 years ago. And this is a special time for me because she's always, you know, she's really good at, uh, well, she's really good at uh, speaking, but she's done ladies' uh, Bible studies and conferences and teas and all that kind of stuff, and she just flows. And so this might be a, a little bit different for her, for me to, you know, possibly mess her up here on the flow. <laughs> but uh, I'm just so thankful for this opportunity. And I just noticed that, you know, when I spoke, when we spoke last service, there's actually freedom in speaking the testimony, you know, because it's sometimes it just gets locked up inside and you just got to release what God has done and, and, and the actual story itself. And, and even reading the story that Jamie journalized in that book, you know, I'd never really read the book per se, beginning to end. And so just touching on it uh, a lot this week is like, wow, that it really brings up a lot of amazing memories, good memories, but painful memories too. So it's good to talk about it and just, uh, just be able to share. Um, so Jamie and I, uh, back in 1990, we, we started dating in September. Um, actually, I saw her from a distance, and I just really thought she was just awesome looking. And, and then when I got to know her, I just, uh, I just loved her heart for God, and I just I, I was sold on her. And, and uh, we started dating in September, and it didn't take long. November, on Thanksgiving Day, I proposed to her, and, and then a few months later, we got married the day before Easter. So we were, we were uh, actually hitting the ground running, having kids right after that, and uh, um, so we had four kids in six, six, six years. I almost said six months. Um, six years, and um, so um, and our oldest right now, he's uh, Caleb, and he's 25 years old. He's sitting right here. Um, Jonah is 23, and then uh, Levi would be 21 years old uh, in November. And uh, that's who we're giving a testimony about today. And, and then our baby girl is 19, and her name is Gracie. And uh, she's a special girl in our family. And um, we have a really close-knit family. We just uh, love each other, I guess like most families do. But there's just a real bond, a real bond that uh, we have as a family. So uh, for the first 10 years, we just had a, an awesome life together. You know, we just, uh, you know, I had a full-time job. I, I wasn't able to stick around the house a lot. Jamie, full-time mom home. You know, she was at home with the kids, just dedicated to just serving our kids and training them up in the ways of the Lord. And uh, she just had a special love uh, for our kids. And I noticed that a lot of times we'd sit in bed and talk. She would be writing. She'd be writing letters to our kids. And I was like, it's just uh, that, that was amazing to me. It was like just writing love letters to our kids. And I saw that a lot um, in our first 10 years. And I just didn't understand it because I'm a dad and I don't really get into all that you know, stuff. But I was like, well, they're in the next room. Why don't you just go talk to them? <laughs> so, but it, it's paid off because we look back at, that, at, at her heart for our kids and the love she had for them. And I'm just so thankful for her. And, uh, and it, it breaks my heart what she has had to go through as a mom um, in, in our story. Um, let alone just what happened in our hearts, my heart and our kids' hearts. So, so anyway, um, in March of 2001, um, we started noticing in Levi, he was four years old, 
that he was starting to stumble a little bit, uh, playing on the playground with Gracie while the boys were playing sports. Uh, we started noticing that there was something not right. Um, he was losing, you know, his ability to move his left arm, making a muscle. We'd had to, he had to hold it up to make a muscle. His eye was kind of not focused. We thought maybe an optom- optical issue. So we spent about a week trying to figure out what was wrong. And they said it wasn't that. And uh, our pediatrician said, you need to go ahead and take him to the emergency room and get a, a CAT scan, MRI. So March 23rd was um, uh, the day that we took him. And the doctor um, gave us the report of the MRI. And, and basically, it was a brainstem glioma. It was an operable brain tumor. And so our lives dramatically changed from that point on. Yeah, so um, I'm going to tell a little, I'm going to try to rush through it a little bit because even though it's been 16 years, it's still so hard to go through this. And like I, was, I said in the first service, I told this whole story. It took a long time. And when I spoke to Bloom the other night, and afterwards I feel like, oh, my gosh, like I ran three marathons. It's so emotionally draining. So if it feels like I'm rushing, I am. So um, anyway, so we started out after Levi was diagnosed. We, we had to make a lot of really big decisions. We had no idea what we were doing, but we ended up doing radiation right away because that's what the doctors told us to do, and so we moved towards that. Um, but we hated it. It was so miserable. It was like taking Levi to have surgery, like a full surgery every day. They, I don't know if you know anything about brain tumors, but they create like a mask, the shape of your head, and then they would put it over his face, and then screw his head to the table. And it was just traumatizing for him. And uh, they would get me to put the, the gas mask on that would put him out. And um, one day he looked at me afterwards and he was like, why do you, mom, why do you keep trying to choke me? And so in his mind, I was betraying him and I was doing this to him. And so Jeff and I were like, there's got to be a better way. So we we're crying out to the Lord. But in the process, I talked to the radiologist while we're still tr- trying to figure out, is this what we're supposed to do? So I talked to the radiologist, and um, I was just asking some questions. And um, in the middle of the conversation, he just kind of got frustrated with me, which I understand. I had a lot of questions. But he just was real quick and said, it doesn't matter. He's going to die anyway. And just that shock was like, whoa. So Jeff and I went together after I did not punch anyone, but the temptation was strong. Anyway, so Jeff and I got together. We just really got before the Lord and just, what do we do? We have no idea what to do. There's no training manual on brain tumors when you have kids. And so we just cried out to the Lord, what are we supposed to do? That was in the hospital. We asked for an idiot-proof sign from God because, you know, the balance of Levi's life is in our hands, and we had to make the right decision. So, Lord, help us. We don't know what to do. we we got to have a sign from you. Yeah, so much pressure. So anyway, we cried out to the Lord, and that day on the way home from the hospital, we stopped to get breakfast, and this random guy came over to us and started talking about brain tumors and natural treatment, because he had a tumor, which, except for the fact that it was actually an idiot-proof sign, (laughs) we didn't really know why he came up to us, but it was really cool. We were like, oh my gosh, we are idiots, and that's a good sign for us. <laughs> nice and simple. So anyway, fast forward, we ended up going to Columbia, South Carolina, which there was a scientist that he was getting a lot of success on treatment. And so we were there for a while, and it was working. The tumor was shrinking to half the size. Um, Levi was losing his weight from the steroids that we had had to put him on, and um, we thought it's gonna, he's going to be healed. We're not going to have to do this any further. It's going to be done. 
But um, right around that time, the FDA shut down this treatment center because cancer is a cash cow in America. And so we were back to square one and not knowing what to do. So again, Lord, help us. We don't know what to do. We have no place to go. What do we do? And so the next treatment center that we found that was kind of natural but much more intense than what we were doing before was in Houston. And so we, we drove out to Houston, and um, it was such a hard time because we stayed in a hotel room, a hotel where everyone was sick. Everyone was getting treatment at this hospital. And so we would get to know people. You know, when you stay in a hotel, you see the same people and have breakfast together and all that kind of stuff in the little dining hall. And um, we would get to know people, and we would love them We would, because we were in the same boat, so to speak. And then they would die. <laughs> and then we'd get to know and love somebody else, and then they would die. And then... You know, we were there for two weeks, and just people were dropping like lies that we cared about and that we hoped with. And so it kind of felt like, we're next. I mean, when is it going to be our turn? So it was just a heaviness and a sorrow and just a thick sadness, I guess I can say, a deep sadness over us during that time. And um, But going to pick it up a little bit. There were some cool things that happened that even in the midst of that sorrow and sadness, um, Levi was so confident. I wish I could spend a couple hours just talking about him and his personality and how he grew to be a man. Even though I didn't get to see him grow to be a man, I did because he became a man and a little boy body. Uh, But he was so confident in God's love. One day, um, we were in Houston, and we were driving along, and we had worship music on, and the, the, the two littles, Levi and Gracie, they'd sit in the back seat, and they would just raise their hands and worship God, and we would just get into it. And um, so they were worshiping and praising, and then it got quiet because the song was over. And um, Gracie, who is my spitfire, I always say that I gave birth to three sweet little teddy bears and then a cobra (laughs) because she came out (laughs) fiery and feisty. So she's always pushing the edge, and so she said at three and a half, yeah, I, I don't think that I love Jesus. I think that I like the devil. And, of course, I know her, and I'm asking the Lord to keep me from just reaching back and flopping her. <laughs> but I did not. And so in the process of my prayer, um, I hear sweet little Levi, and he goes, Oh, Grace, don't you know that the devil hates you, and he wants to hurt you and scare you and chase you and choke you till you die? But Jesus, he loves you so much. And he wants to hold you, and he wants to do puzzles with you, and he wants to wrestle with you, and he wants to scratch your back. And I just thought, how precious is that? Gracie says, oh, okay, you're right. I do not love the devil. I do love Jesus. (laughs) And so, but a cool little shout out to Jeff, because those are the things that he did with the kids. He got on the floor, and he did puzzles, and he wrestled, and he loved on them, and just I mean, he was Jesus to them, and that was, that was Levi's definition of who Jesus was. So just what an important thing for Jeff to love them and, and be face-to-face with them all the time like that. Um, anyway, shortly after that, fast forward, we did survive Houston somehow. It was during the time that 9-11 happened, and we just remember um, our life was so uprooted and we felt so unsteady, and when that happened... When 9-11 happened, it felt like the rest of the country understood where we were. So we could all do it together, just feel frazzled, and like the sky was falling. Um, 
fast forward, so we did make it home, and um, I had called Jeff, and I told him, I said, hey, I'm, the, the littles and I are going to come in the back, and we're going to hide, and so when you and Caleb and Jonah come in, it's going to be so fun. It's just going to be the, just a little side note, right? Well, so we went in, and we hid, and um, when they came in, it was the craziest thing, because we were expecting, you know, they're all little. There were eight and, eight and under, and instead of being all fun and playful, they all started sobbing, crying, and they formed like this little huddle with all four of them together, just crying and holding each other and smelling each other. And Jeff and I just stood back at what a beautiful sight that they're so young, but they love at a level that is unexplainable just how they adored each other, and they hated being apart. They just wanted to be together all the time. Just a beautiful picture. When I asked the kids, what is your favorite story of your time with Levi? All of them said unanimously, the reunion. And so I asked one of them the other day, I asked Joe, and I was like, so why? Why is the reunion so good? He goes, because that's what it's going to be like in heaven. We're all going to be back together, and all that is wrong will be made right again. And I was telling Jeff the other day that when we do get to heaven, and believe me, when you have a child in heaven, you think about it a lot, a lot. Mm. You know, almost getting a car wreck or whatever. It's like, whatever, I almost went to heaven. But um, I think my favorite part of the thought process of heaven is that I'm not even going to join in on the reunion. I'm just going to stand back and watch and see them all come together. Because, you know, when, you know how you're a certain way? with certain people, like when I'm on the phone with my sister, my kids know I'm talking to my sister because I talk a certain way, I joke a certain way, I'm just away with her. And um, so all my kids and Jeff had a way that they were with Levi that I haven't seen in 16 years. So not only did he die, but a part of all of us died, and it's been missing for 16 years. And um, I cannot wait, I cannot wait to see that again. So that was in September, and um, October, November, and December uh, came, and, and they went pretty rapidly. Um, I just thought about, you know, the November 17th day, and uh, that was a, a, a momentous day for us because really that was the day that Levi stopped breathing um, because of um, the shutdown that the brain tumor was doing on his respiratory so this was on a Saturday, and we, we saw what was going on, and we realized he's not breathing. I just fell on my face, and I just cried out to God so loud that my, Jamie said the neighbors heard me. I mean, I was desperate, desperate for God to do something because, I, I mean, the inevitable couldn't be here now. And within five or seven minutes, the ambulance came, and they were resuscitating, intubating him, and you know, whisked him off, and he was at Eggleston for eight days, and actually, it was a miracle that he was actually, he lived through that whole time, uh, and we actually saw um, God do amazing things through that short period of time. Um, he saw an angel, for sure. Uh, we were around around his bed, worshiping, praising God, and, and uh, different, you know, members of the body of Christ, different, you know, churches were all coming around and praying over him, and that was an amazing sight itself, but um, he, he, Levi was looking up at the ceiling like he was staring at something, and, and we asked, what do you see, Levi? Do you see an angel? 
and he couldn't talk. And he just, he could barely move his head, but he was nodding. Yes, he could see an angel. He was looking at an angel. We couldn't see anything, but we knew he had his eyes on, on an angel there. And um, I just thank God that he gave us an extra month with him. Um, I was actually able to wrestle with him on the floor very carefully, just doing things with him that I just enjoy doing with all my boys and my girl. And we would wrestle a lot. It was just my way of showing affection. And I was able to play with him on the floor there and just bond with him like that and, and just enjoy however long the Lord was going to give us. Um, December 20th, Jamie's birthday came along. And he was in bed. He was in hospice. He was in our own bed. Jamie and I were with him with a few others around, but we were just real close to him. And, and uh, Levi, we just knew it was close. We just knew it was close. And he raised his hand, and he was doing this with his fingers. And, of course, Jamie knew right away he wants his blanket. So we gave him his blanket, and he pulled it down real slowly on his chest. And within a minute, he just breathed out. And we just, we were just, what? No, this can't be. And so Jamie's birthday, every, every year, it's Levi's you know, death day. And... It's the day he went to be with Jesus. And so. So then we buried him on the 23rd, the day before Christmas Eve. And um, it was just shocking because the fight was over. That was it. And um, I rem we remember we were talking about the, um, when he was buried. Um, we, uh, I kept, my brother was trying to get me to leave the graveyard. And it was because, I mean, I was talking and the the bulldozer was coming to push dirt over the tombstone, I mean, over the, the casket. And that was such a shock because, and a lot of times people will say, well, you know, he's not in there. It's just his shell, the shell of his body. So, you know, like that's all easy to process, you know. And so I just remember thinking, but that shell, that little chubby, blonde-haired, blue-eyed shell, that's all I know that it housed his soul and his spirit. And and I want it to be warm and not covered with dirt. And um, just uh, was just shocking. We remember leaving the cemetery, and I remember telling Jeff, I feel like all the warm blood in my body was just sucked out, and cold ice has been injected into me. I just remember thinking, I will never be warm again. I will never, ever feel cozy ever again. I will always be cold from the inside out. Um, so a lot of people would say, you know, that's where the battle ended. You know, he, the, the battle's over. But for us, the battle had just begun, especially for me, because I, I just couldn't be okay with it, you know. Um, people always ask, what was the hardest part? And um, first of all, I would say the hardest part is the end in communication. Just, I mean, we live in such a community, you know, we talk all the time. We communicate. I mean, I don't spend two seconds that I'm not communicating with the people that I love on by phone. So imagine it's just ended. You can't talk to him. You don't know where he is. You don't know what he's doing. It's just over. It's just over, and there's nothing you can do. There was a feeling of, like, you know, when kids are abducted, and, you know, the parents, you can imagine how panicked. That's the way I felt, panicked, but there was no place to go. Mm. I, there was no place to search. There was no one to find and take, you know, to... Anyway, um, so that was, the, that was the first hardest part to swallow, but then the second part was just the way everybody grieved differently. 
and we couldn't seem, I couldn't seem to help anybody. Um, Jeff wanted to go to the cemetery all the time. So before they put grass down, he would take a rake, he would rake the dirt, and he would just stay there for hours and hours, and it just got on my nerves because I didn't want to go there because in my mind, if I go, then I am say, actually saying to God that I'm okay with it. And so it was my little power trip of, I'm not going because I'm not okay with it. And um, it, was, it still stayed. <laughs> he didn't change his ways because I pitched a fit. Um, so that was really hard. As a matter of fact, when we were at the hospital, I didn't say this in the first service, but um, one of the counselors that came into the room to talk to us, they said that people that lose a child, there's a 90% chance they'll get a divorce. So that was really some bad news for us. Yeah, why'd they tell us that? We survived. <laughs> so, but um, anyway, so the kids all agreed differently. Caleb, Caleb went inside himself and just didn't talk ever. He didn't talk about it at all. He didn't like us to talk about it. He didn't want to go to the cemetery. He wanted nothing to do with it. He just stayed quiet, but observed. You know, he was watching and hurting, and I could see it, but I couldn't get him to come out. And then Jonah, Jonah felt so guilty all the time, and he's my guilty child. And so he would, he would just feel like he had failed. And I, I gave them journals, the boys' journals, to write down how they felt so we could kind of attack the emotions that come as they come rather than wait until they're like 30 and having a breakdown. And so I would read their journals every night to see where they were, and um, Caleb's would always say, Dear Levi, and then nothing. He just didn't know what to say. And, um, and then I would read Jonah's, and it would say, Dear Levi, I'm so sorry I wasn't a better brother. I'm so sorry for that time that I did this, or I'm so sorry. It was just a whole plethora of apologies for where he felt like he fell short. And um, it was so hard to read and to see and not be able to help them. And then Gracie was three and a half, and she was just so confused about why she would even say, he just went away from me. And I would say, oh, no, he loved you so much. We were just reading, Benji and Grace and I were reading in, in the book the other day that she would say, I, he just left us. He just left, he just left me. And we would say, oh, no, he loved you so much. He didn't, ha he didn't get to say. And um, Gracie was like, nope, he just left me. He just left me. And um, it was hard to explain that to her. Well, he didn't choose it. But anyway, um, another thing that she would say is that, she just wanted to go back to the place, that place. And it took me a long time to figure out, but then she started saying, I want to go to where Levi was in the white box. And so what I realized is she just, she wanted to go back to the funeral home to see him in the casket because that's the last place she had seen him. And so um, just that struggle of, man, what do we do now? What do we do now? Um, so I, I, for a first year, I was good because I was numb. But Jeff was, I was really falling apart on the inside, but Jeff was the rock. He stayed firm. He, he clung tightly to God's word, and without him, whew, it would have been bad. So talk about your... Um, I mean, I was still crumbling inside. I, I had to seek God with all my heart to give me the strength to keep my family stable. And I would have to go to the cemetery. I, I just was drawn to go there to spend time with Jesus, to spend time with Levi. And I just had conversations with the Lord, shouting matches with the Lord, you name it. I just, I wrestled. And I always went back to the word. Okay, 
doesn't matter what happened. You're still faithful, Lord. I mean, God is faithful no matter how, you know, how bad things are. I mean, his word is full of his faithfulness. And uh, there's a verse that says, uh, does my unbelief in his faithfulness make his faithfulness uh, without effect? May it not be so. Let God be true and every man be a liar. God is faithful no matter what. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. And, you know, I'm reasoning, you know, trying to pull myself out of the pit during this time to keep myself, you know, stable for my whole family, for Jamie. She needs me bad. She needs me to be a rock. She needs me to remind her that God loves her and cares about her and knows her pain. And, and then, you know, reminding ourselves of the scriptures that talk about the resurrection. If we're children of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we've got this amazing hope eternal life. We're going to be with our loved ones, with glorified bodies, and there is a, a happy ending, you know? I mean, if I, if I didn't know the Lord, we would be in ruins, and the world doesn't, doesn't have that hope. And so, you know, the Lord sustained us by His grace through this time, um, and, and it, it's amazing. And like I said earlier, it's like, let us decrease and let Him increase. It's because of Him that we're together. It's because of him that we have hope. It's because of him we can smile. We have peace. We have a peace that passes understanding because of Jesus Christ in us, a living hope. So that's where we are right now. Um, and so right after that time, he was firm and strong as a rock. I was not. I just, just I, I couldn't believe that God really loved me because if he knew me and he loved me, he would know this was crossing the line, that don't mess with my kids. You can mess with anything, but not my babies. And so um, I just really struggled. I was, I was having, like, panic attacks. I didn't know what they were because I'd never had them. And I would catch my breath, and I would, he would have to just literally, like, lay on top of me and speak God's word in my ear continuously. Just, does he really love me, Jeff? Does he really love me? Because I feel like he doesn't. And um, it was so strengthening to have him constantly speaking that into me. Um, uh, I... I always, like, I raised my kids. This is kind of weird and radical. I didn't share this with the first service. I didn't think they could handle it. But, um, <laughs> but um, I raised my kids on martyrdom because I feel like the question in my own heart is, am I real? Like, I can say I love Jesus and I'm faithful, but would I die for him? If push came to shove, would I deny him? And so I would ask my kids every morning, okay, I would give them a scenario. If, if this happened, would you deny Jesus? And they would always say, no, no, Mom. We always, we always, always claim that Jesus is our Savior. We never deny him, no matter what, no matter what. And so that was my main thing to them, is that this is what matters most. And in the end, we get each other back. So I was all about that. But then when Levi died, I realized that dying would be so easy. It's living that turned out to be hard. Um, so that's where I was. And for 10 years, at, right after he died, I got asked to speak a lot. So I'd go a lot of places and speak at all these, you know, women's conferences and everything. And, and it was good for about a year. I started speaking a year after he died. And then maybe a couple years after that, I kept speaking. And then after a while, I started thinking, I mean, I don't even know if I believe this anymore. Because I didn't have peace. I didn't feel the presence of the Lord. I was just at rock bottom, but still speaking it. And so finally I was like, I can't do this anymore because I feel like a liar. I'm saying these things. I, I, I don't 
feel it. I don't even know what I believe about God anymore. So that wrestling point went on for about 10 years, just, just arguing and griping with God and just saying, I don't, I don't, I still, after 10 years, I do not receive this that you allowed in our life. I do not receive it. I don't want it. I don't like how you operate. And I am absolutely and completely offended that you let this happen to me. And um, so that went on for 10 years. And so what I finally realized, apparently I'm a slow learner, is that the most miserable place in the world is to be at odds with God, to argue with God and to buck his system. And so finally, after 10 years, victory came with submission to say, all right, then I choose you no matter what. And I know that that means I, there's no guarantee I won't bury another one of my children. And there's no guarantee that I won't bury my husband. But I'm still, I'm with you. I'm your girl. And that was a huge cross in the road where victory started to come. And I started to be able to live free and open. Instead of living like this, I was living like this. And um, so anyway, I, I started to ask the Lord, let me be like Mary when the angel came to her and said, hey, you're going to get pregnant. I know you're only 14. People are probably going to stone you. People are going to think you're sleazy. But you know what she said? She knew all the implications, but her response was, may it be unto me as you have said. And so to embrace that attitude made life flow. It made life flow. And to have the attitude and say, Lord, I want to be like Job. And I want to say, I don't know what you're doing, but in the end, I want to come forth as gold. I want to be your girl. I want you to be proud of me when I come into your throne room. I want to have done well. Um, and then I really, really came to this point. It was so cool, long and hard, that I could say with David that it was good that you have afflicted, that I was afflicted, because now I know you. I know how you work, and I'm going to keep on pressing forward to get to know you more. So um, I guess in the end, what I've learned and what we keep learning is that that the struggle and the fight and the scrap that it takes to get to truth, to get to genuine and transparent relationship with the Lord, authentic, to get there is hard. It's not easy. And, and God's ways are not, they're not easy. They're very difficult and they're very not safe. But at the other side of that, the reward is beautiful and peaceful and scandalous and furious love of God. It's worth it. It's worth the fight. Um, so I, I hope that, that y'all are encouraged to press forward in whatever your story may be. So I would highly encourage you uh, at the end of our service today, Jeff and Jamie are going to be back in the uh, back corner. The book, Levi's Legacy, I would highly encourage you to grab a copy of it just for a donation. All the proceeds are going to go toward our new children's building. But... Uh, Barb shared with Jamie that she tried to read this book while on the beach, and she's sitting there sobbing her eyes out reading it. And I'm like, I thought you went on vacation to get away. And uh, she got ambushed by the Holy Spirit. But uh, you did a phenomenal job of being able to capture your heart and your thoughts. And uh, Jeff, Jamie, I love you guys. Thank you so much for being willing to share your story and God's working in your story with our people here today. That's phenomenal. Father, as we open up, uh, just a passage here and just uh, ponder again uh, your workings in our life and what it means to trust you. I pray that every guy and gal in this room right now would desire to trust you with all of their hearts. 
that every person in this room would understand the importance of complete surrender and believing that you're good no matter what. So as we wipe tears and blow snot and breathe for a second, heal this room, bring healing into hearts in this room, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You know, Jamie made the statement of becoming offended with God. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 11, I want to give you a verse to ponder, starting in verse 2, on this whole thing of being offended with God. But the scripture says, now when John in prison, part of the works of Christ, when John in prison, John was in prison because he had called out Herod, had been, uh, had been incarcerated, and John was about to be decapitated. They were going to cut his head off, just as being a prophet, a voice for God. Now, when John in prison heard of all these works that Christ was doing, as Jeff said, John had already made this proclamation, my ministry's got to decrease so that his ministry can increase. I got to get gone so that he can get on with what he's got to do. John in prison sent word by his disciples to say, go ask Jesus if he's really the expected one, the anointed one, the Messiah. Go ask him if he's really the one or should we look for someone else because based on what I'm experiencing right now, about to die, doesn't seem that things should go this way. I mean, I've been faithfully serving God. I've lived a life of self-denial. Uh, my entire mission was proclaiming, make straight the way of the Lord. I've been obedient. I've honored God. Now I find myself in prison. Go ask him if he's really the expected one. And I think each and every person in this room can identify with the dilemma that Jeff and Jamie were sharing as well as the dilemma that John the Baptist was having. Are you really the expected one? Is this really the way you treat people that serve you? They had served at a Bible college and uh, they had been in the Word. They had been pointing other people to Jesus, going on missions. And is this really the way, God, you treat people that really repent and place their faith in you? That's where John the Baptist was. He's wavering and he's wondering. And he's starting to like really trip up a little bit. And Jesus does the unimaginable in my mind. Jesus doesn't run to where John is. He doesn't say, that's my boy. Uh, even when Elizabeth conceived him, I mean, this was part of the plan. I'm, I'm going to go hang with John. I, I got to I gotta comfort John. John's in a damp, cold prison. And the scripture says that Jesus sent some disciples and said, Y'all go tell John what's up. I mean, Jesus doesn't even go to John. Just go tell him what's up. Go tell John that the blind are seeing, but he's about to be decapitated. He is going to die. Go, go tell him that the deaf are hearing, but he's about to be decapitated and die. Go, go tell him the lame are leaping. Those with paralysis are standing and running and He's about to die. Go tell him. Go tell him that the dead are being raised. 
go back and tell him that Lazarus is going to come on the scene here in a few months and I'm going to tell him to get up and tell him I'm raising the dead. Tell him that the poor. John had lived a life out with the Essenes in the wilderness. Go tell him that the Gentile and Samaritan are going to get cut in on the deal, that those dogs with no pedigree are going to be part of God's covenant people. Go tell him that even those kind of people are going to hear the gospel. Yeah. And then tell John, blessed is the person who's not offended with me. The word offended means to stumble, to fall away, to want to throw the towel in. And Jesus tells John, Don't gripe at how I coach my team. Don't become disturbed with the way I'm running my business. And I started thinking about this, like, for people that have attended church, people that have been affiliated with God-style stuff, what causes people to stumble? What causes people to fall away? What causes people to be offended? What causes people to throw in the towel? I want to give you three simple things. I want you to hear this. Even as they shared their narrative, I'm like, yeah. Because some of you come in here today and you're tempted to throw the towel in. You're stumbling, you're offended. God hasn't worked the way you wanted him to. Your, your narrative has had some twists and turns and you find your place, find yourself at a place where it's not the way you scripted it. And, and, you, and you're struggling, and God wants to give you hope. He wants you to hang on. He wants you to believe he's good. He wants you to believe he's just. He, he wants you to believe that he's really working for his glory and your good as the story unfolds. Three simple things, I believe, that we can kind of lean into to say, yeah, this, this is why people fall away. Number one, Jesus requires too much of us. John chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples that I'm sharing all these things with you so that you will not become offended or so that you will not fall away. What was he sharing? He was sharing with them that a lot of people are going to hate you. He was sharing with them that a lot of people are going to persecute you. He was sharing with them the prophetic word that many of you are going to die a martyr's death. Some of you will be crucified upside down. Some of you will be scorched and boiled in water. Guys, I just want you to know, if you're really going to hang with me and walk with me, I, I just want you to know that suffering is a huge part of the equation. You're going to experience suffering. But we live in this jacked up evangelical society today where here is a fundamental problem. Here is a fundamental problem that there are certain proclamators and preachers that will preach a message that eliminates suffering, pain, adversity, and turmoil. And the result is people will oftentimes walk away when they experience adversity, suffering, and turmoil because the Jesus that was presented is not consistent with the Jesus of Scripture. And a God that would allow his son to be murdered and a Savior that would tell his disciples that you're going to go through the ringer Oftentimes, that Jesus and that gospel is not being presented, and the result is people are offended. And when we're told up front, 
You may die. You may die. You may take the gospel to your people group. You may take the, pop, the gospel to a people group across the water. But there's a chance you, you, you could die a young death. And I think a lot of times the cost of following Jesus, a lot of people want to negotiate that and they throw the towel in. Jesus makes the statement in John 6, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you'll have no part with me. And the scripture says many of his disciples departed and no longer followed him. Because he, he was saying it, it's, it's going to be rough at times. Uh, there's, there's going to be a lot of adversity that you face at times. So you have to ask the question, have I counted the cost to really become a disciple of Jesus? Not just some convert that prays a prayer. I'm talking about a disciple of Jesus, a Christ follower. He's like, I'll walk with you. You can come to me when you're tired and weary and heavy laden, when you're going through tough times. I'll never leave you, never forsake you. You can come and I'm going to give you rest, but it's going to be a, a bouncy road. And I... And I believe if we embrace that Jesus, when the turbulence comes our way, we won't throw the towel in and quit. We may get offended. We may hurt. We may struggle, but we'll struggle well. We'll struggle with authenticity. Here's the second thought. Why don't you get offended? Because Jesus doesn't meet my expectations. I've defined expectation as premeditated resentment of the heart, which means when you don't come through the way I want you to come through, I'm going to resent you. I've already premeditated that I know what's best. But the Lord often, he works in ways that we don't understand. And he says in Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. My ways are a lot higher than your ways. And many of us in this room have struggled with this. We've struggled with this. Why has God not answered my prayer, why has God allowed this to happen to me, T to me? When I texted God and said, hey, what's up with this? And he didn't text back immediately. I'm like, what's up with that God? And we live in this microwave society where we feel like our answers should come in milliseconds. God, you owe it to me. And God goes, no, I don't. Don't be offended at how I'm working. And I think as we ponder this whole thing of expectations, if we're not careful, it starts to exhaust the mind of the believer because God is not obligated to meet our expectations. And we struggle with that, Jeff, Nick. We struggle with that. I, I was told that he was going to supply all my need. I'm, I'm, I highlighted all these cool verses of Philippians 4.13 and Philippians 4.19, that I can do all things through Christ, and he's going to meet all my need. It's all about me, right? You know, it's like Benji's got Romans 5 tattooed on his ribs that it's good to go through tribulation, and tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character. Hope, it's good to, to be troubled. It's good to go through trials. Jimmy quoted... David, it was good for me that I would have, I would go through affliction and be afflicted because I could learn your ways. Paul would write in Philippians 1, you've been granted not only the privilege to trust Christ for salvation, but to suffer for his name's sake. And the, most evangelicals don't want to highlight those verses. We're looking for that feel-good rabbit's foot. But when you go through these times 
and God doesn't respond according to your expectation, it is a, it, it's an invitation from God for you to examine. Where's your faith? Is it really in the Jesus of the Bible or is it in some cosmic Santa that you think exists? And we're going to struggle. We're going to hurt. I can't imagine the pain of going through the death of, of a child. I can't imagine the pain of a doctor going, it doesn't matter, he's going to die. How calloused. I can't imagine friends, well-intended friends, coming and looking at Jamie and Jeff going, I've been praying and God has shown me he's going to live. A lot of us, Try to excuse the pain of others when they're in the midst of suffering with these so-called good God cliches because deep down inside, we're afraid of hurting too much ourselves. And it's not that we've got this word from God. We're just trying to appease our own conscience that God forbid I should ever have to suffer that way. And we live in this evangelical culture where people are all sensationalized by the Holy Spirit at times. And God's given me a word for you. Under the old covenant, you would have been stoned. Make sure you speak only when spoken through. I want the best, but what's the best? And sometimes our definition of best, it is. It hinders us from embracing what God is doing. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, one of my favorite stories in the book of Daniel. Don't call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Please don't call those homies by those names. Those were Babylonian names that Nebuchadnezzar and his posse gave to them. Their names were all God's substance names that God is able. God is my deliverer. God is going to see me through. Their names had all this substance. But the pagan king brings them in and says, you guys are going to bow to this golden image that I've created. If not, your butt's going in the fire and you're frying. And these guys look at this pagan king and says, we're not going to bow to that. Our God is able to save us and deliver us from that fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, we're not bowing. And I think a lot of times in our struggle, as Jamie said, looking at the kids and maybe reading the Fox's Book of Martyrs and all these different things of saying, I've studied missions. Are you willing to die? Are you going to denounce him? No. No. And I think as we go through it, God goes, you're going to stay with me. I'm not going to always meet your expectation. Don't throw the towel in. Learn to trust me. Learn to trust me in the valley. Learn to trust me in the midst of your pain. Learn to believe that I'm good. So the cost is too much for some people. He doesn't always meet our expectations. Here's a third thing. Jesus, your timing just seems bad. Your Timex don't work according to my Timex. You appear to... Do what you do oftentimes too late. You're too slow. I wish you would work faster. You've left me in the land of wandering and wavering. And 
I wish you would speed up your time clock a little bit. You ever been there? Is he ever going to respond to that text? Is he ever going to give me a word? I mean, Barb used to say before all of the modern technology of today, I wish he would just send me a fax occasionally. Right? And Jamie shared, I'll never forget as I was praying through this and struggling through this and praying through this, she said, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, Jamie, he is going to die. He's going to die. And when Jeff gets bombarded with a letter from a pastor from the Midwest saying, your son would have never died if you would have had more faith. Really? As he lays over the grave plot, weeping his eyes out, wanting to still believe that God is the resurrection and the life, and they're going to dance on the golden streets one day, and people are saying, it was your fault. Egocentric thinking, Caleb, even as we know this, working with kids from the ages of four through nine, egocentric thinking, I've talked with Ash and others about this, when you're four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, something good's happening, hey, check out my report card, look at the trophy I got, but when something bad happens, kids take the blame. It's my fault. Even as she said, Jonah's writing going, sorry, wasn't better. Sorry, couldn't save you. Sorry, couldn't keep you alive. And we're trying to process this. And then some stinking dude has the audacity to send a note saying, your son died because of your faith. Really? Really? Then why did God's son die? Was it a lack of God's faith? Was that why he died? Because God is a faithless God? No. No. And we're so quick to want to blame and excuse pain, dismiss pain in our lives. I, I don't want to hurt. Mary and Martha, that's where they got it, right? If you, were, if you would have been here, Lazarus, you love Lazarus, he wouldn't have died. I'll wrap you with this. I want you to ponder this passage, Job. Because we live in a society of feel-good messages that are not sufficient to get you through the storms of life. We live in a society where people want to just minimize and trivialize the gospel and tell you to take a couple of pills and you're going to be all right. It's not. God wants us to press in him. As Jamie and Jeff said, there's hope. There was hope anchored in Christ. The scripture is replete with promises of God saying, depend on me. This is not all that there is. There is going to be this celebration. There is going to be this huge party. Your dash is only for a short period of time, whether it's four years or 70 years or whatever. Believe that I'm good. You prayed for kids. It was a great gift. But what I'm going to show you about me is going to be a great gift, but it's going to hurt. But remember this in closing. Jesus demands everything from us if we were to come to him. But he promises suffering. He promises heartache. He promises turmoil at times. In this world, you're going to have a lot of tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. 
He promises that he's going to walk with us. He promises that he'll never leave us. He promises that he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You're going to go through tough times. My buddy Craig was in the first service and he came up during the prayer time and prayed with Jeff and Jamie and he was weeping. He and Kathy had a little eight-month-old eight die of SIDS. My girl Jennifer serves over here every week with our four- and five-year-olds. Get a note last night that her mom, who's been battling cancer, passes away. And she writes, God is good. Even in the midst of this, I experience the peace and the power and presence of God. I'm hurting, but God is good. And you don't realize that he's the peace that passes all understanding when you can totally lean into your own understanding. God has to get us to a place that our understanding taps out. He goes, now I want to show you who I am. I'm good. So remember, Jesus says, it's going to cost you everything. There's going to be suffering. Number two, his ways are higher than our ways, and he doesn't always show us what he's doing, why he's doing it at any given moment. He doesn't. But I really believe that he's called us to walk by faith and not by sight, and it's impossible to walk by faith when we can see everything with clarity that seems to be leaning in toward us with our favorable outcomes that we like. It's, it's a struggle. I don't want that narrative. I, I don't want their story. But I'll never forget doing that Faith Day event when I was chaplain with the Atlanta Braves at Turner Field, and Stephen Curtis had come in to do that Faith Day event with us, and it was Stephen's first concert that he was performing after the death of his little girl when his son accidentally hit that little girl and killed her. And Stephen stood before these people. And he says, guys, I'll tell you this. There's a lot of things I used to say that I believed about God that I don't believe anymore. But I can tell you the things I do believe about God I believe stronger than I ever have in my life. And I think God allows us to go through the valleys at times to strengthen our dependence on him to say, what you do believe about me now, you really do believe. Remember, being offended is a choice. It really is. We make the choice on whether we're going to be offended with God. And a lot of times our offense is when things don't go the way we would have scripted it out. It doesn't make sense, some of the things in life. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense that Jesus wouldn't go hang up with his buddy JB and say, what's up, dude? I, I really am the expected one. When you were like flipping in Elizabeth's womb and you were born and we hung out a little bit, but when you started going out and you said, hey, that, that, that's him right there, and you pointed everybody to me, to me I'm, I'm the one. Now listen, you're... This is going to suck for you right now. You're going to be decapitated. But I promise you, I'm about to raise you up with me. You're going to be with the Father, okay? This was your assignment. And, and you knew, you knew your assignment was a tough assignment. But you did it. You did it. Every assignment at times can be difficult. And God is saying, but I want you to do it. I want you to trust me. I want you to stay faithful. Don't throw the towel in. Don't quit. Don't, don't, don't stop. And so some of you came in here today. And for some of you, you're going, I just want to quit. 
I'm going through too much and I just want to tap out. I went to our recovery class the other night and I sat there. And one of the people in the room said, a few weeks ago, almost called it quits. Because of my addiction, because of everything I've been through, I looked at my options and thought, I'm about ready to tap out. I want to end myself. And people walk in here at times battling that. You're offended with the way your narrative is going. You've made certain choices that have created some of the chaos. But at times, just living in a fallen world, we all wear certain pains at times. We believe that God wants to meet you here today. We believe that God wants to set the captive free. We believe that God wants to unlock whatever you're going through. We believe that God is crying out to you saying, come, come, come to me. Don't run from me any longer. Come to me with all your, your tired, weary, exhausted thoughts that you've got going on. And I, I want to give you rest. I want to show you that I'm good.